Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 25th. We're getting to the end of August, a slow month when it comes to news traditionally. Some interesting news today, though. Uh, Joe Biden yesterday announced that he was canceling $10,000 in student debt, um, and low-income students are eligible for more. One of the things that struck me as the parent of a child who might be eligible is the complexity of all of it. Who qualifies for loan cancellation, depending on how much you earn, depending on your adjusted gross income, depending on whether you received a Pell Grant and so on and so forth, and what kinds of debt qualify. There's so many different kinds of debt. It's so complicated, not just going to college, but the finances of college. Um, even the question of whether you will get the cancellation of debt if automatically or whether you'll need to submit a tax return uh, so you get involved with the IRS. This complexity of loan uh, of forgiveness very much mirrors the subject of our conversation today about the complexity of college pricing. A new book out by Philip B. Levine, A Problem of Fit. Uh, Philip is not an expert on loan forgiveness, but perhaps, Philip, we can begin there. Um, how much does the complexity of Biden's proposal reflect your own critique? of the over-complexity of college pricing? How would you fit the two together or connect them? Well, I think that, uh, so you're correct that the system of pricing that we face in uh, higher education today is incredibly complicated. And that filters down into the loan forgiveness plan that was, uh, you know, came about yesterday, uh, that was announced yesterday. The thing that I think we need to think about uh, in terms of loan forgiveness is how did we get into this problem in the first place? Uh, you know, loan forgiveness is a direct response to the fact that there's a huge amount of student loan debt out there. Well, how did we get into this problem in the first place is that we have significant problems in our system of pricing in higher education and in terms of its affordability. Uh, you know, one of the things which sort of troubles me about loan forgiveness is that it's, you know, a response to a problem that doesn't actually address the problem itself. The problem is college pricing. How do we fix the issues of college affordability uh, going forward that will stop us from getting back into this position somewhere down the road? Uh, that's not what we accomplished yesterday. It's a good point, an important point, Philip. Let's try and simplify all this. Uh, you, you've been writing about the complexity of college pricing for a while. You had a piece in CNN back um, uh, in, uh, I think it was 2014, about why college pricing is uh, so hard to figure out. So you've been scratching your head over this one now for almost a decade. Why, in a very simple sense, is college pricing so, so complicated, so bewildering, particularly for kids? So, you know, the goal in setting an adequate system of college pricing is for people to be able to pay an amount of money that they can afford. Now, clearly we don't actually accomplish that, but that's certainly a worthy goal. Uh, You've been does... very generous, Philip, to the people who set this pricing. I'm not convinced <laughs> that as a parent. I, my, 
I think that college, the colleges and the pricing system seems to be incredibly, um, incredibly dodgy on a moral sense. I certainly don't credit these people with, with wanting to bring their prices down, but maybe I'm speaking as a typical parent here. Well, let's put it this way. That's my goal. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if we want to set a system that enables students to pay an amount that they can afford, we have to calculate what that is. That's where the complexity comes in. So uh, in reality, what we do is we set up the system that requires, you know, students and parents to provide tremendous amounts of financial detail about their own lives that's used to construct this measure of uh, essentially something called uh, ability to pay. We call it an expected family contribution, which doesn't really mean anything. But in reality, what that uh, uh, label is used for is to measure how much a family can afford to pay. And financial aid is generally based on that amount. Um, that requires essentially doing your taxes twice. So you have to put all of the detail that goes into, you know, reporting all of your income, which you do on an annual basis, which probably you don't do. You either have TurboTax do it or you hire somebody else to, it, to do it. Um, and then you have to do exactly the same thing in terms of your wealth uh, and asset holdings. So that creates an incredibly complicated system that results in a situation where it's essentially impossible to know ex ante beforehand how much you're going to have to pay. Now, we have these sticker prices, which all colleges are required to report by law. It says that, you know, public institutions charge $30,000, private institutions charge $80,000, whatever the number is. Those numbers are essentially meaningless. Uh, very few students actually pay those amounts. Instead, they pay an amount less than that because of the financial aid system. But if nobody knows what they're going to pay, that's kind of an odd system, right? Because basically you're now- It's worse than an odd system. I had a woman who will remain nameless on this show last year who's an expert on how to get into college. And afterwards, when the cameras shut down, we talked about college pricing and what we paid for our kids. And she made me feel terrible. She said, oh, you paid X amount? That's ridiculous. You should have paid Y. Uh, and it's only for insiders. But before we even talk about the- problem of fit and this complexity of pricing. How do colleges come to the, the, the pricing in the first place? And, 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 uh, and Philip, you're an economist, you teach at Wellesley, you know this stuff. Um, how much has college pricing gone up over the last 10 or 20 years? A ridiculous amount, hasn't it? Well, so I think that there's a, a considerable amount of misunderstanding about trends in college pricing. Uh, you know, I could show you articles going back for the last 50 years in leading publications, including the New York Times or whatever, uh, arguing that college pricing is rising at dramatic rates and colleges are pricing themselves out of the market uh, for 50 years. Uh, that seems like something must be wrong in terms of the way we're thinking about it if we're missing that point because colleges still exist. So what's going on? What's going on is that people focus on the sticker price. Harvard charges $80,000 a year. That's a huge amount of money. That's not if you're making, you know, 50 or 75 or $100,000 a year, though. That's not what you're paying. You're paying much less than that. If you actually look at trends in what students actually 
pay to go to college as opposed to the sticker price. The sticker price is rising at very rapid rates, but since most people don't pay the sticker price, that's not really what's going on in terms of college pricing. College pricing itself is rising at much more modest rates uh, than what people expect. Uh, expect based Why on is the sticker price? Uh, it, it sounds to me like a scam. Yesterday we did a show about Crazy Eddie, the guy who owned a chain of New York <laughs> electronic uh, stores in, in the 1980s, which was based on radically reducing the price of electronics. It was a huge scam. What's the difference between Crazy Eddie and Harvard University? Well, so what does Harvard University do? They charge, again, $80,000 a year sticker price. Who's paying that? You need to be making upwards of $300,000 or more to pay that price. Everybody else is paying less than that. So for even instance, if you're, I'm sorry to jump in here, Philip, but even if you're paying, if you're earning $300,000 a year, you're probably seeing... I don't know, 200 of that. You can't afford to pay 80000 a year in college fees. So people with $300,000 a year, based on, the fi- you know, based on what they're paying the full price, largely because they make $300,000 a year and they have hundreds and thousands or potentially millions of dollars worth of assets as well. So again, financial aid is based on your income and your wealth. But let's focus on the bottom end, because I think that's really where it's important. Suppose we took a family at $50,000. Obviously, if you're making $50,000 a year, you can't afford to pay $100,000 or $80,000. That's just essential. That's impossible, obviously. Um, but to attend elite institutions like Harvard that are charging these ast- quote unquote astronomical fees, those families are paying essentially nothing, like literally a few thousand dollars. Um, so, you know, in terms of thinking about affordability, the sticker price is not the number to focus on. What we want to focus on is who's paying how much according to where they are in the income distribution. What does, for instance, a low income family, how much do they have to pay? The right answer from my own perspective, given my goals that I stated earlier, is that a family that's making twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year essentially should go to college for free. Uh, paid basically nothing. Um, And that's what elite institutions do. So how can elite institutions do that? They do that because higher income people are paying a lot more and they have large endowments that help subsidize uh, the price for the lower income students. what's, What's interesting about this market is that where we really see the problem in terms of affordability is not so much at the Harvards of the world. It's more like the typical state institutions, which allegedly are cheaper. So what do they, they charge $30,000. So your $300,000 family can afford that. No problem. They're fine with that. Good for them. What happens to the low income family? Well, it turns out that for the low income family at those institutions, they're not paying anywhere near zero. So they can be expected, you know, aside from the loans and aside from the, uh, you know, the work that they're expected to do while they're in school, uh, they're also typically expected to come up with, you know, five to seven thousand dollars a year in cash. On top of the loans in the work study and the student employment, where are they supposed to get that money from? That's the problem that we really face. And the other thing that, that's important to note, um, Philip, and please collect, correct me if I'm wrong, is you talked about something called financial aid. 
that still is not free money. That requires the students to borrow money, which accounts for this whole debate now over Biden and, and whether he should be forgiving loans. So student aid has to be repaid. So it's, it's, it's not free money. A lot of it actually is free money. Uh, so particularly, at, again, at the elite schools, almost all of that money is grants. You just, you get the money, you don't have to repay it, you're done. Um, like I said, the student, the student, the low-income student who's at uh, an elite institution is paying very small amounts of money. They may have an expectation of a relatively small student loan. You know, thirty-five hundred dollars is a typical amount for federal re for you know reasons of federal policy. Um, and, you know, so maybe they're borrowing ten, fifteen thousand dollars, maybe even twenty thousand dollars over the four years when they're in college. That's not the student loan problem. The student loan problem is when you have students at lesser ranked institutions that don't have enough money to provide enough of what I'm calling this grant-based financial aid, the gifts. So, so um, is, is your basic argument in a problem of fit that the people, and, and this seems to be true across the board, every industry from healthcare to the military, everything about America, it's ultimately poor to middle-class families and kids that are, are, are losing the wealthy are doing fine. They got enough money anyway. Uh, so it's it's ordinary Americans who are being really hurt by the complexity of college pricing. Is that what your argument is? That is exactly right. And in fact, that is consistent with what you're describing about the loan problems. So, um, you know, you're a low income family. You're attending a you know typical state institution. They're expecting you to you know you make thirty thousand dollars a year. They're expecting you to come up with five or seven thousand dollars a year in cash. Well, obviously that's not happening. Well, where's the money coming from? You borrow it. Well, so you know things happen in the student's life. They you know um, maybe don't graduate from college or whatever, and then they have these debts that they took on that they're not able to repay. And there's your student loan problem. Well, why did the student loan problem uh, uh, arise in the first place? Because they were. The, those lower and middle income kids were charged too much money in the first place. That's what we need to fix. We are just going to find ourselves in exactly the same position five and 10 years from so, now. So, so Philip, is one of the problems, though, and this is what the Wall Street Journal was talking about um, in their critique of Biden. I mean, obviously, they're no friend of Biden, so it's no news they're critical. They're going to inevitably be critical of everything he does. But their, uh, their, their editorial today suggested that Biden's half trillion dollar student loan forgiveness coup is an abuse of power that favors college grads at the expense of plumbers and FedEx drivers. Why should, uh, you know, stepping back from all this, why should we encourage poor kids to go to college when they might be simply better off becoming plumbers or FedEx drivers, not taking on loans and not wasting four years at average colleges, which probably aren't going to help them get much better jobs than being plumbers or FedEx drivers in the first place. So it's an interesting concept. And, and in some sense, that's where the title of my book comes from, a problem of fit. So what do I mean by fit? So the issue that we're looking for here with the concept of fit is that there's sort of, there's a right home for everybody. Uh, you know, Harvard is a great institution and they do wonderful things, but it turns out not everyone should. I don't think do. Everyone I've known who's gone to Harvard was incredibly miserable. I think it's a horrible institution. 
which I don't know if you went there. One of my wives went there and she was completely miserable. So I, I'm not convinced it does any good work, but that's another story. Go on. It certainly does a, a, a good job in terms of economic returns. Uh, as you say, for some people, you know, being a plumber and an electrician is a great outcome and that's appropriate for them. And that's great too. What it is we should be striving for is a system where everybody is able to find their right home. So one of the points I think that you're, uh, you know, didn't quite get right in that discussion is that for the most part, a college education is a very valuable investment, not just for people at Harvard, but in many dimensions, the higher education market in general generates graduates who make more money over the rest of their lives. For the most part, it is a good investment. Uh, it turned out that, you know, uh, 15 or 20 years ago, we instituted policies that encouraged things like for-profit institutions to come up. Um, they tended not to do, they, they did a really good job of taking people's money without providing much in terms of value. Uh, there was a lot of abuse uh, at those institutions and students being taken advantage of. Clearly that's a problem. Um, uh, community colleges have a different issue in the sense that like community colleges actually do a very good job with students who graduate, but their graduation rates are very low and they need to be increased. So one of the problems with student debt is people who borrow the money and then don't get the return. But in general, college is a good investment and it should be something that we support. We should just be able to support it in a way that people can actually afford the investments that they're making and not saddle them uh, with tremendous amounts of debt because we charge them too much in the first place. What about the argument, and you're dancing around this, probably because you're a professor at a university, what about the argument that it's simply ridiculously overpriced, that guys like you, I'm not going to earn, ask you how much you earn, but you're overpaid, you don't work that hard. <laughs> I mean, even your book, Philip, I mean, the cloth price, and, and I'm not blaming you for this, it's a University of Chicago book, the cloth price is $95. It's utterly absurd. It doesn't seem, it seems to be like the medical industry in that, Doctors can essentially charge anything, just as universities can charge anything. Professors earn too much. Bureaucrats earn too much. Everyone's skimming. And ultimately, in, in healthcare, it's the patient who pays. In the American further education system, it's, as you suggested, the poor student, the patient. Everyone contribute on this from you down, from your university president to you, to your bureaucrats at Wesley. Shouldn't everyone take a pay cut? So again, I think there's a, a, a lot of misunderstanding here about what happens in terms of the budgets of higher educational institutions. There's notions that, you know, we just keep raising prices endlessly that goes on to spur, you know, huge additional expenditures. Um, uh, and that just is not true. That is not what the facts. So what do the uh, facts say? You keep, on, you keep on saying that. Tell me the so numbers. What the facts say is that, you know, costs of running higher educational institution in terms of what, what the technical term is called net tuition revenue. How much money do we take in? Net tuition revenue uh, in total, right? Net tuition revenue is not really rising all that dramatically, basically, you know, roughly at the pace of inflation. And we're nonprofit enterprises. So the amount of, basically we spend what we take in. Um, and so spending, uh, at colleges and universities over the at least over the last decade or so isn't really rising at a rate significantly more than inflation 
so, you know, I think that there's, you know, you hear, you see stories in the press about, well, this school built this fancy swimming pool. Those, those stories are, you know, an anecdote here and there. What about the bureaucrats? Uh, is that an, is that anecdotal? Is that inaccurate too? That there are more and more of these people at fancy universities and average universities who, who who aren't. It's not clear even what they do. They're not. They don't generate revenue. They sort of somehow exist between the student and the teacher. The the bottom line is that expenditures, that net revenue and expenditures at most colleges and universities in the United States are are not rising at rates that really you would consider to be, you know, unwarranted, sort of at typical rates. Uh, so, you know, I think that there's tremendous misinformation about how college are, colleges um, are jacking up the prices because that's based on sticker prices. Right. You keep on going on about sticker on. prices. In your, um, in your CNN piece, you compared shopping for colleges and going uh, car shopping and the sticker prices and what you actually pay. But where's the, I, I just bought a Tesla. There's no nonsense of going into a car dealership. You pay what you pay. There's no bargaining. Where's the, yeah. where's the Tesla in, 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 in the college business when it comes to pricing? Do we need a Tesla? So, you know, so one alternative that sometimes you hear is that why should everybody pay a different price? Um, it's, you know, um, uh, and in most markets, which are competitive, there's a single price. Why doesn't everyone just pay the same price? Then everyone knows what that price is. Um, that's great for most products. Uh, that's not really, I don't think, a situation that we want to see occur in higher education. Well, why not? There's advantages to having a system in which people pay different prices. Higher income people can pay more. Higher income families who can afford more can pay more. Lower income families who can pay less, pay less. If we just said, well, let's just charge everyone the average price. Well, that's great for the average income students and the higher income students, but now you just dropped out completely. But, but Philip, lower I, income I take, they can't afford I take to the home. point, but when, I, when, when you and I go to Safeway or when we buy a car, yeah. We're not asked how much we earn. We don't pay for our bread or our, our vehicles as a reflection of our wages. Why should college be any different? Why can't the tax system reflect this? Or more radically, especially when it comes to the debate about medicine, why can't we radically reform the whole system, as some people are suggesting in terms of uh, a single-payer medical system, so that a lot of the issues that you address, and these are important issues, are, are, are structurally addressed. Because one thing we know about the wealthy is they always find their way around all these regulations and figure out the best deals. So uh, I think at the end of the day, we keep coming back to the same point is that like there's advantages to having a system in which different people pay different prices. An alternative, as you suggest, could be the government could just pay for the whole thing, right? And so how would the government pay for the whole thing? Well, basically they'd have to significantly increase taxes. So we live in a country that has a very, well, that has a progressive income tax system. Higher income people pay more, lower income people pay less. Essentially lower income people don't really pay taxes at all. So let's increase taxes. Well, who paid for that? Higher income people. What's the difference? 
So now you have higher income people paying taxes that funds the higher education system. Well, at least they'd be transparent, as you say. So, at the moment, nobody has any idea of what other people are paying, where the money's going. So it's, it's that to me, that's a, a better system. We've had a lot of critiques of the higher education system on our show, Philip. You may have seen some of them. One with Charlie Eaton about the sort of neoliberal nature of contemporary universities. He has a book, Bankers in the Ivory Tower, another with uh, Deverian Baldwin, how universities are plundering our city in the shadow of the ivory tower. To what extent in your mind is the modern university, perhaps like the health system, and there seems so many, sim- so many similarities between the sickness, the financial and perhaps cultural sickness of the further education system and the medical system, how much is this crisis bound up in a broader crisis of neoliberalism? You're an economics professor. Is there, is, is there anything in that? So here's what I would say, is that the goal of a higher educational institution and something which I think we do have the ability to accomplish is to increase uh, income, uh, intergenerational mobility. We have the ability to take students who start out at lower income, uh, lower tiers of the economic ladder, educate them, let them graduate, let them go out in the job market. They will make more money. We know that from statistics. Social engineering. You're saying the whole point of university is social engineering to enable some poor people. But the reality of the university system, everybody knows this, Philip, is it only enforces the current aristocratic architecture of American society because the wealthy know how to get their kids into the best colleges. They know their way around the economics of paying or not paying at colleges. And all this does is compound inequality at the moment. So it is 100% a a compelling um, uh, interest of ours, certainly of mine, to be able to increase the extent to which that mobility happens. I mean, basically, this is a country that's founded on the American dream, that anyone can start out any position on the economic ladder and have the ability to move up. Which currently I, is, a, is a lie, Philip. We know that. 100%. The is about as bogus as... Um, 100%. And we should be working on ways to help improve that. And I'm saying that higher education it has the potential to be a part of the solution. Part of And the part of that solution that's required here is the ability to enable all individuals, all students to be able to attend uh, a college of an appropriate college for them, regardless of the price, affordability is a critical issue. It has to be the case. It's the fit that we're after, right? It has to be the case that if you're a lower income student who happens to be very academically gifted, you should be able to go to the best colleges and universities. And that's what's going to generate the mobility that we're looking for. So I completely agree with you that we don't have enough of that mobility that the American dream that we're looking for doesn't truly exist. We want that to happen. How do we accomplish that? I'm saying that higher education has the potential to be part of the solution. I keep on interrupting like some angry upper-class American, which I probably am, Philip. So let me try not to interrupt, keep on jumping in here. I take your point. I I think you're absolutely right that the complexity of college pricing is part of the problem. I'm not convinced that it's not epiphenomenal, in other words, a reflection of something else. But anyway, what are we going to do about it? I know in, in, in... one of your pieces, you promote the idea of my intuition at Wellesley, which breaks everything down for the kids. But it needs to be more structural than just having an app which breaks down college fees for, for, for incoming students, doesn't it? Sure. For, 
Definitely. So uh, I advocate that uh, in my book, I talk about this a lot, that that is an important part of the solution, not the entire solution. It has to be the case that we do a much better job of communicating what college is actually going to cost students. And so uh, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned uh, my intuition. Uh, that actually is a nonprofit corporation that I started um, on my own. Oh, so it's your thing. So you're sort of in a way promoting yourself then. Right now I am, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, essentially my intuition now is uh, a tool that's available at 75 or 80 colleges and universities nationwide. Uh, it's a very simple way for people to figure out exactly what college is going to cost them based on their finances. Not filling out FAFSA, not like taking out your tax forms, answering questions off the top of your head. You know, it takes couple minutes for students to, to, yeah, to FAFSA it. is the ultimate nightmare, not for the students, but for parents. I've had to go exactly. through it. It keeps it's me so, awake at night. So you should, you try my intuition. It takes a couple minutes. You can answer the questions off the top of your head and provides you with a ballpark estimate um, of what a particular college will cost. I, I, I would argue that's, that's not the solution. That's a part of the solution. Okay. So what's the solution? The solution is there's still issues of affordability. Uh, that exists, even if you knew what college really was going to cost you, for many people, it's still too much. So what's the problem? Where it's too much, so I can, I document in my book exactly the extent to which it's too much. It's too much essentially for, really for lower and lower middle income students who are expected to pay on the order of, again, five to $7,000 more than they can afford. Uh, to attend college. We have to fix that. People can't make good decisions if we're charging them too much money. Okay, so we agree, Philip, you and I are on exactly the same page here. What can be done? So uh, it turns out that uh, the simplest solution in all of this is we already have a system uh, within the government to provide funding for lower income students. It's called a Pell Grant. The Pell Grants are just too low in value. They don't do a good enough job. Right. So uh, you're so, very much in favor of the Pell Grants. Uh, you yeah. know, especially you're against the Republicans who want to undermine or stop funding Pell. So for you, Pell's the fix? So it turns out that doubling the Pell Grant, I would argue, is exactly the right solution. So what does it do? It takes the current grant, which is roughly $7,000, a little bit under. Um, if you double it, that pretty much fills in the affordability gap. And sorry to uh, jump in again, Philip. What exactly what is the Pell Grant? It's it's a grant for lower income students. It's so it's it's yeah, so it's you know, roughly speaking, um, in the current formulation, students up to roughly sixty thousand dollars a year in income are eligible this for this is their grant. Parents income. It's not their income. It's these are for this is I, I everything that I'm talking about here is for dependent students. There's right. uh, we can this have is free money. Companies. This is not Pell, you don't have to repay the Pell. It's a gift, right? You just get it doesn't have to be repaid. It's you know almost $7,000 uh, now, doubling it, bringing it to $14,000. Both has the ability to fill in the gap for lower income families, lower and lower middle class families who can't otherwise afford college. Um, and it also would bring up the threshold in terms of income, bringing up to like, you know, $80,000, $85,000, you know, which is above median income. So more than half of the country um, would be eligible for some form of Pell Grant. Uh, that would go a long way towards addressing the affordability problem. I should also say, by the way, that doubling the Pell Grant, as I'm describing, would cost 
in the vicinity of like $40 billion a year. So the half a trillion that we just allocated to loan forgiveness that doesn't solve the problem going forward, um, that's the same price as 10 years or more of doubling the Pell Grant that does solve the problem going forward. So you really think that the Pell Grant can can fix things. What about the one final just thought of mine is that we need, you know, I, I take your... Uh, my intuition app, maybe it's useful for students, certainly is. But don't we need students to also understand the financial upside of going to college, of understanding that this is what they might earn if they do a certain subject, if they study business, and this yeah. is what they would learn if this is what they would earn if they chose not to go and become a FedEx driver or a plumber? Yeah. At the moment, there's so much illiteracy and 18 year olds are generally illiterate on most things. But there's so much illiteracy in terms of why you would even go to college in the first place. So I agree with that. And in some sense, you know, more I uh, would argue more information is better. Um, it is true that there's been a dearth of that information in the past. It's also true that there are efforts being made now through the college scorecard and other methods um, to help address those information problems to actually point out, like, if you go to this school and you major in this field, this is how this is on average what you're going to make. Um, those data are becoming available. They're not easily and readily available now, but like, that's a starting point. We need to do more in that regard. Um, but it definitely is true based on all of the evidence that, you know, certainly a four-year college degree has tremendous economic returns that far exceed uh, uh, the cost of the education. Some people are going to be watching this, Philip, and be deeply depressed. They're going to think to themselves, I thought the whole point of going to college was to read books and become wiser. Is that just romantic nonsense? Uh, it's funny. I talk with my students about this uh, a lot when I you know, teach my economics classes and, and I ask them, like, you know, why are you here? Um, and is the reason that you're here because, you know, I'm just listening to me talk is so scintillating that you're willing to pay, you know, thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands at Wellesley. It's What's your sticker price? Seventy grand. So, you know, for higher income students, are you know, are, are you really here because you're willing to pay eighty thousand dollars to listen to me talk? My guess is nobody's willing to pay that much to hear me talk. Probably not willing to pay anything to hear me talk. Uh, but so then I say to them, well, why are then why are you really here? They all know it's because they know that when they graduate, they will get better jobs because of it. It's an interesting question. Uh, Philip Levine, B. Levine's new book, A Problem of Fit, How the Complexity of College Pricing Hurts Students and Universities. You may not have to pay 70 grand to listen to Philip. You can read the book. Only costs $25 in paperback, although it's 95 in cloth. I don't know what you get with the cloth that you don't get with the paper. Anyway. Uh, congratulations, Philip, on the book. What else should we be reading? This is a hard read, but an important read. Are you reading for fun, Philip? Uh, well, my reading for fun, it turns out, happens to be oftentimes related to these topics. So uh, uh, um, Sandy Baum and Mike McPherson have an excellent book, um, essentially on a related topic, arguing that you know higher education can't solve all of America's problems. Um, I talk about... As well, we know talk, that. So I talked about how... Social mobility is a, is a big deal, and that's an important goal. Um, we've got, you know, a pre-K system and a K, K, K through 12 system that, you know, throws 
significant barriers in the way. Uh, we need to improve that as well. So that's an outstanding book. Uh, Dorothy Brown also has uh, an excellent book uh, called The Whiteness of Wealth that talks about how- mm, Yeah, um, we haven't even talked about race. I mean, the racial element here is enormously important too. So. And, and related, uh, definitely related to the topic topics I'm talking about. Her book is about um, how provisions in the tax system provides significant advantages to white families uh, over black families. And that, you know, contributes to the racial wealth gap. Uh, it's an excellent read. Uh, she's a tax attorney, so uh, a different from a different perspective from an economist. Might help with sleeping as well, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever works for you.